1: along with Evan Barnard and Arlene Brown, hanging out here with me. All right, so what do you guys have to say for yourselves? Ready? Woo-hoo! <laughs> see, if you're watching the video, see, Arlene's hair sticking straight up. There you go. Her, because she put her... <laughs> so that's what I, you know what's good about Arlene? When you're like me you don't she's, have any hair, it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> she's, she's got her free market Mickey Mouse ears on. <laughs> There's something wrong with us. <laughs>
1: I, I, you know, I'm really. Hey, um, you know what, guys? I was, I was thinking about this week. You were. I really. I sit around and I think way too much. It's probably I, I had to just reform and stop doing it. Can you imagine being Elon Musk? <laughs> I mean, not, not the really. financial side of things. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I can't imagine just the pressure of. but he thrived in that you know i i don't he is he is eating all the pressure that's like
0: more pressure go
1: is he or is it (laughs) eating him i mean i just that that just seems like it's really really
0: challenging
1: (laughs) it's just like at every turn somebody's after you and trying to get to you in some way or another you know it's like um there was an interesting interview and i thought it was just fascinating and i thought it would just spurn a little bit of a conversation and who knows which way this conversation will go but i you know i think that from a um, you know we talk a lot about how what makes companies work and what makes economies work mm-hmm. and when and, and i think from a if you're a person that runs a company you remember we talked a little bit earlier and we just made the point that, you know, here's what you want to do as a person that owns a company or runs a company or or whatever. And this is what makes capitalism work in general. That's typically when we invest, we're investing in we're able to actually participate in capitalism all around the world. Yes. Is the idea behind it. And when we look at when you invest, we we talk about different markets around the world. We talk about large U.S. stocks. And sometimes what happens, that's all. That's where it stops for a lot of people. But if you look at the U.S., we would say that that was an emerging economy 100 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we want to be, in my humble opinion, investing in more emerging economies around the world. Mm -hmm. Because we say, here's what we're doing is we're exporting – a lot of jobs to other countries, but we typically are exporting jobs that are not necessarily higher-paying jobs in many cases, uh, because we want to live a higher standard of living. We would rather have, and this this is where it gets real debatable, as what jobs are being exported. Are they more security-related, or are they would they have something to do with some of our, our own economic security, like steel, Being produced outside the united states you know you can get into those types of things but the point that i'm making here is that what we have a tendency to do is we have in historically and this is comes from uh one of my friends is an economist out at dartmouth And he used to talk about how we export jobs that are typically more manufacturing related because the upper income jobs were more service related. And now we're bringing some of that back here for security reasons. But I think that the point being that we invest in different parts of the world because different functions are being served by different countries. And if we invest all in one country, we are going to be more focused or concentrated on certain industries if certain functions are being done elsewhere. Mm hmm. Like, maybe we actually produce things and they're assembled in a country like Mexico, like for example. Yeah. You know, it's just, just an example of how that can happen. Well, so Musk is, you know, he's got his hands in a lot of different things, but yeah. he was being picked on for being anti-competitive mm-hmm. in, in some ways. And he was being interviewed. And I want to just play a couple things that he did because it was really interesting. I did not know this about Elon Musk and some of the companies that he's operating. Yeah, check this out.
2: Nothing, nothing any of my companies have done has been to stifle competition. In fact, we've done the opposite. So at Tesla, we have open sourced our patents. Anyone can use our patents for free. How many companies do you know who've done that? Yeah. Can you name one? Tesla. I
0: can't.
1: (laughs) Well, well, Ann, our resident attorney, had to argue that she had. But it was fallable, and it was was, uh, for the the seat belt. Yeah, I mean, it was like a minor, minor thing, you know, the reality of it. It was, yeah. How did you know that? I have no social life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm surprised you knew that, Evan. I didn't. I didn't, but you know, this is, it was seatbelt, but yeah, you look at this stuff. This is high level right. stuff yes. that he's le- letting other people use, yeah. not the seatbelt. Uh, but I didn't, I did not realize that. And he says, you know, about anti-competitive and you think about it. I remember back when, remember beta versus VHS? Yes. Yes. In <laughs> every way beta was superior, right? right? Right. But VHS won the day because there was more shared information. Yeah. And the more you let other people, and I think that's a, that is a lesson of life. The more you bring enough other people along with you for the ride in success, yeah, the better off you'll be. And more than just financially, I mean, just in every way. And Uncle, Mer, Uncle Charlie Munger has also said that. <laughs> has he? I knew I liked about, him. About yeah, helping I, other people. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think there, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. But he goes on to say,
2: at SpaceX we don't use patents so i mean she said once in a while we'll we'll file a patent just so some patent troll doesn't cause trouble <laughs>
1: which i think is funny <laughs> I, think it, I think it's funny i mean it, some, sometimes is. you just have to play the game right because otherwise they're going to get mad at you if you, you know so it's just like the silliness so much of the, of government regulations yeah, and they'll cases. sue
0: him for an idea that they stole from yeah. him yeah you
1: know exactly it makes that makes total yeah. sense right Evan? Uh, yeah.
2: But we're not stopping any, we've done, we've done nothing anti-competitive. We've done nothing to stop. I, our I'm not just you at all. No, I, 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 just, I just want to clarify for the audience because.
1: Because he's speaking in front of a large audience right here. So, you know, the guy from CNBC is, is basically what Andrew is just going hey, at. No. I'm not picking on, no, he's a, no, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> I'm
0: talking to the audience. Maybe, yeah. but that's a very common thing is, you know, well, you know, People have said that you're anti-competitive and, you know, well, I have, I'm not saying you are. Oh, that's a really good point. I was just teasing, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like Proverbs. You know, you pick right. on
1: somebody, I was just teasing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, yeah, so that, that is very true quite often. And, and, that, and that's what they'll do, what the media will do, right? Uh, I'm not saying that you're doing that. People say that, right? right. Yeah, no, good point. It's uh, a way to take the heat off
2: yourself. Some companies have. Done, done anti-competitive things. I, I, I think the, the strange thing or the unusual thing about SpaceX and Tesla is that we've done things that have helped our competition. So at Tesla, we um, have made our supercharger system open access. We, we've, we've, we, we've made our charger technology available for free to the other manufacturers. The reason is no walled garden. We could have put a wall up. But instead, we invited
1: them in. Yeah, and he even gave the government, let them
0: use information. Well, and now it's going to become the standard, by the way.
1: Yeah, and you see how-
0: That's going to become the standard, just like VHS versus beta. That technology and that port and all that is what's going to be rolled out, and all the vehicles are going to start using the same
1: Yeah. And and I think that the point about this, there's a, there's a couple of points that, that can be made about this. And number one, you think about it when a company, and I've often said this, when a company comes up with a technology, we want to invest in that one company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, for sure, Tesla has done great. But, you know, the Magnificent Seven, uh, you know, a lot of companies have done really well. A lot of people are saying, wow, gosh, they're super, super high price. You know, and it's a little bit late to get in that party, which, you know, there's a good point to be made there. But think about it. If a company shares information like that and has to, in order to be successful, they have to share information Mm -hmm. or they have to be able in Musk's point being that I have to do this because then, as Evan said, it becomes mainstream as an investor and i own hundreds of thousands of companies that are all benefiting from the technology that they came up with mm-hmm. wouldn't you want to be an investor in all those companies and doesn't that scream for the desire to and the need to make sure that some real good diversification ta- is taking place in
0: your portfolio yeah and some of those uh, and some of those lesser known or lesser followed companies let's say that would now use that technology weren't you know i we always hesitate to use the word underpriced or undervalued or anything, Mm but, you know, the value is always fair. But they didn't have to spend on R&D. And so all of a sudden, if they now have this new cost taken off the table. That's a really good point. They could benefit higher as a stock price change than Tesla or, you know, than the inventor of that technology. No, that's a super point. The consumers... Um, they will
1: benefit because the price will go down. Yeah, yeah, and, and when your price goes down and the consumers benefit, that allows the consumers to spend on things that they might not have otherwise spent on, and that can <laughs> benefit other companies in that way as well. Or they may actually buy an electric car because <laughs> they can afford it. Well, did you guys, uh, <laughs> Consumer Report? Or did, I don't know now. Consumer Reports actually lampooned the uh, EV see that arlene yeah yeah you're and they they were they were tearing it apart they were tearing apart for reliability issues uh but what they pointed out was that the hybrids were actually fairly well looked at uh you're you're thinking on that arlene because you have this uh kind of well uh that's why hybrids have actually like more than one year one year delayed uh distribution i mean you know uh the order is back up for
0: more than a year for the hybrid uh cars
1: well what about what do you guys think about the idea that if we uh, this is this is interesting what is going to happen as far as tax revenue to improve roads in the future if the gas tax was actually so used oh they'll
0: just do a wheel tax just- or something i mean they'll figure it out
1: yeah they're gonna they're gonna have to do
0: they something. were talking about taxing bicycles yesterday On on (laughs) 99.7, they're talking about taxing bikes (laughs) because they're going to be on the road because they were talking about this infrastructure plan in Nashville. Right. Uh,
1: Yeah, I think you're probably right. Some kind of a wheel tax. But, you know, so you look at that because there have been some financial people, you know, oh, they're going to go and and they're going to and increase income taxes as a result of it. I think it would make a whole lot more sense to actually take whatever tax and raise a tax that actually is. In concert with whatever it is that is utilizing the roads and right and yeah yeah you know, so I, I think that makes a whole lot more sense uh, but you know so I so I think from a um, from a standpoint of you know all of this talk about what's happening it is not the pure electric vehicle that is necessarily being looked at that favorably as we've been talking about for quite a while but it's some hybrid between the two and where that's gonna go Nobody knows. But I think it's interesting when Consumer Reports comes out and all of a sudden says this is really the reliability has been really, really bad. And then you look at about the amount of materials they were doing something on CNBC. They were talking about the amount of materials to make these vehicles coming from outside the United States mm-hmm. is abysmal. it's really high, you know, so you're looking at a geo- geopolitical risk as well. And that whole thing, that whole dynamic may change in a year. Yeah, as a result of what you know with the
0: elections next year, exactly. And you know we we've been talking a lot about capitalism uh, today. And uh, I was driving, you know, just a local example of the risk return that capitalism has to deal with, both as investors valuing that and the business taking Mm -hmm. the risk. Mm -hmm. Is uh, I was driving south of uh, Spring Hill. You know, I kind of went home a different route uh, because I I forget what I was doing. But anyway, I was going down on thirty one and past the GM plant, and now there's this huge battery plant, Mm -hmm. you know, just just south of the GM uh, assembly works. And you think, okay, well, if all of a sudden EVs aren't popular, now they might have to retool to do a hybrid, and Mm -hmm. what are they going to manufacture, and how many billions of dollars went into that complex? Mm. You know, they deserve to make billions of dollars if they guess right, and they produce a profit, you know, there there's a huge risk that's just sitting there and if the winds shift, you know, that could be a horrible decision in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Or they'll modify it and they'll come up with, you know, they'll make new batteries for you know, hybrids. But, you know, it's just that's just an example of we see these buildings, that's capitalism. And when you
1: look at a lot of investment portfolios, do you primarily see US stocks or international stocks? Oh, US. Okay, US. Okay. So when you have a government that comes in and says mandates that you've got to do this. Right. It can be problematic, yeah. and one of the things that came out in the Consumer Reports, you know, the writings, was that some of the country. This reminded them, I thought it was interesting, of the Consumer Reports' their own reporting back in the nineteen eighties, because what they said was that some of the best vehicles coming out from a reliability standpoint were actually not manufactured in the United States, which is kind of sad in a way, but. The reason i bring it up is because this is important as an investor primarily most people are re- really concentrated in the u.s markets which are a bit frothing you know compared to history not saying that they're going to come down right. or when they're going to come down but the area of the port, most people's portfolio that is greatest representation which is large u.s growth stocks is selling for a pretty Stinking high price compared to history Mm -hmm. and the areas that are selling for very very low prices are you know the international and most people are very very underrepresented and yet those are the types of companies remember in the 1970s and 1980s that dominated the automobile markets Mm -hmm. and they dominated so much manufacturing and they dominated from a return standpoint in stock markets and I think this is why it's so critical to make sure that you do not become complacent With decent returns of large U.S. companies in recent years and recognize that and they they use the example in this particular article about from Consumer Reports or about Consumer Reports, I should say, of the nifty 50 stocks and the Magnificent Seven and how the parallels were so similar in that in the early 1970s, it was the US large manufacturers and the big companies that were on everybody's radar screen. And they were like, these guys, these guys can do no wrong. They're wonderful. They're great. It's going to be the future and blah, blah, blah. And those very nifty 50 that the media talked about so mm-hmm. much and talked up were the very companies that had the worst returns going forward. And what happens is investors, if you're flat footed and you don't know what's going on in your investment portfolio i think it's really critical to get up to speed about this because when these changes take place you look back in the 1970s and you look back at the early 19 you know the periods of time when international when when that came back around those areas that were underrepresented in in so many people's portfolios when they came back around you couldn't get in fast enough the prices increased too fast and hence you want to make sure that you're diversified before
0: you missed this oh. happens,
1: right? Yeah, before the horse gets out of the barn. I'm Paul Winkler, Evan Barnard, Arlene Brown. We'll be back right after this. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye, and financial planning, tax laws constantly changing, and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area, and everything we do is fee-only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get an initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degree planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon.
0: Yeah, I uh, ran across an interesting this, uh, article by John Reckenthaler uh, out of Morningstar, and the title is Mutual Fund Strategies Don't Belong on Trial, and there's a specific reason for that, that title, as you'll see. This sum- Here's the complaint. This summer, four former employees of a company called Cobham Advanced Electronic Solutions filed a class action lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Their claim... The organization breached its fiduciary duties by selecting unsuitable funds for its 401k plan. Whoa. Okay. All right, all right, all right, all right. Have your attention. Yes, you do. Receiving the most attention in their suit and the topic of today's discussion was the Target Date Series American Century One Choice portfolio. Target Date Funds? Yeah. So, this is – it's really interesting because the – and there's a lot of research that went into the article. It was really very well done. The plaintiffs start by questioning the series costs. And, you know, like we've, we've seen before, if you look at all of the various target date funds out there, Fidelity, Vanguard, America, whatever, right, right, right. they all, you know, they're all A, poorly designed in our view, heavy, large U.S. growth companies and so forth. Yeah, but, you know, they minor tweaks growth, right, sure. around yep. each other. Mm-hmm. Well, they start by talking about the costs. That case does not appear strong. The current expense ratio of this fund, ARDUX, the fund specifically cited by the plaintiffs, is 049 percent. Yeah, not like that's not, not well below the average sure. fund expense and so forth. Because yeah.
1: you know the area the, the area of the market that they're in, they're managing is a really low cost area of the market to manage, so you don't have to, you wouldn't expect a real high management fee for that. You wouldn't,
0: yeah. and it's a you know it's a portfolio anyway, a fund of funds, but still. It's Mm -hmm. a very reasonable expense for what what that is. And he said, uh, John said, I don't think they're going to win on the cost merit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's the interesting thing, though, is they basically said, because of this, you know, because of how the fund was designed, Mm -hmm. it underperformed. And what went on to happen, they looked at the top 25 target date funds. And in fact, this fund was three from the bottom, okay? It Mm -hmm. was number 22 out of, you know, the list that they looked at Mm -hmm. from common target date funds in 401k plans. Mm -hmm. But if you looked inside of the fund, it was a more conservatively structured portfolio, but there was really nothing, you know, from a fiduciary sense in the 401k world Mm -hmm. out of kilter. They just had a lower stock allocation, And they had more on the fixed income side than a lot of their competitors. Mm. And so because of that, their performance was lower during a period of Mm -hmm. high Mm -hmm. stock performance. Mm -hmm. Well, if they had done this survey in 2008, this probably would have been at the top of the chart. Yeah, would have been great. And they would be like, we love (laughs) you Because the stock heavy target date funds, you know, And so you could argue, well, they were being more conservative because they were a fiduciary. They weren't taking risk and so forth. And that's kind of the point of the article was, okay, it didn't perform well, but does that mean they should be sued because their strategy didn't work? His ultimate summary is, let the free market do its job, let investors, let 401k committees abandon the fund and put their money somewhere else with a strategy that more aligns with their risk tolerance or whatever, but it doesn't belong in court just because the strategy didn't work out. I thought it was really an interesting piece that they went through.
2: Well, I like it. I like the way he said as well that uh, we, risk was not even considered.
0: Right. Uh-huh. If you looked at the Sharpe ratio, which I had to review this morning, frankly, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, looking at return, their return minus, divided by their standard mar- deviation, market, market
1: return minus the risk-free rate divided by standard deviation, is and what that is, yeah.
0: they were the top-rated target date fund based oh. on their risk-adjusted. Oh, interesting. Return, mm-hmm. interesting. And so, you know, a, you know, I'm not an attorney, but I, I'm going <laughs> to say these people aren't going to win on the merits of the case. But the interesting thing was that they had taken a legal challenge as opposed to just abandoning the fund and saying, "Oh, you know, okay, we're going to change the strategy or whatever. And, you know, we've seen some of these lawsuits in 401ks previously where either they don't have choice or, you know, the funds really are egregious uh, in the selection menu. But in this case, you don't usually hear target date funds get roped into litigation. It was an interesting issue. Well, well, a couple of comments on that.
1: So, you know, as, as I hear you talking about what happened with that, I'm thinking in terms of the fund doing something that I've often said that most target funds won't do, mm-hmm. which is look different than their peers because yeah. there's a danger in that. right? You know, if you're driving down I-65 and you're the one person <laughs>
0: <laughs> going 86 yeah. instead of the others going 83.
1: Now, if you're there, if everybody's going 80, you're probably not going to get pulled over. Your likelihood not going to be pulled over. So if you look like everybody else, even if you're breaking the law, right. you're still fairly safe. But in this particular case, they did something. They took a risk. Maybe I don't know yeah. what was going on in their minds, whether they took that risk Thinking that the stock market was going to go down and they were going to look brilliant, you know, doing that, Uh, you know, the reality of it is your odds are against you of being right if you're betting against the stock market historically. But that could have been a reason that they had done it. So, number one, I think in terms of that, uh, they were more conservative. You know, when you talk about target day funds, I was thinking the possibility would be that people, as time goes on, and I've often said this to people, I said, here's the deal. You have 404C and 401Ks for a reason, Mm -hmm. which is basically this. Give the investors enough different choices that if down the road they've been listening to Paul Winkler, Evan Barnard, (laughs) and Arlene Brown, and they've been hearing us say that these portfolios aren't terribly well diversified, there's a problem, and they have underperformed what they should have had in their 401Ks, and now they're living at a much lower standard of living than they should have been then they can't come back and sue you as the employer because you gave them other choices. Right. You didn't just put target date funds in the portfolio, you did put a small cap fund in there, you did put some value, smattering of value funds in there, and you put enough other things. And that's why that rule actually exists, 404C, is to allow companies to have these target date funds and some other things and not worry about, well, if everybody just goes to the default and target date fund, they can't blame us because we did give them other choices. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. You want to learn more about what we do? Go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there. And if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors. And confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one.